Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so excited to be here again in Island Pond. Uh, Kyle called me up here a while back and asked if I could fill in one more time before, as uh, Brother Adam shared, we do launch. Uh, six weeks from now, we do launch at Hookset. God has blessed us. Uh, for those who may not know, real quick backstory. Uh, my family came up here from Kansas City, Missouri, hence the uh, Chiefs Red. I see some of you guys got the memo for the Super Bowl tonight. Uh, but we came up here uh, been about a year and a half ago. We felt God calling us to come up here to uh, plant a church. Uh, and he just has opened doors after door after door to show us that we are right where he wants us and we are doing what he wants us to do. And so we're so excited as we prepare to launch at the town hall there in Hooksit. Uh, we're in talks about another location with him, but it's, it's going to be so amazing. He has just brought so many people in. We have a, an amazing team. It's not very big, uh, about 12 or so of us plus some kids, but it, it is, their, their hearts are on fire for taking the gospel there into our hometown. So be praying for us. Uh, you guys are blessed. This will be the last time that you guys will have to hear from me. Unless Kyle would be willing to do some pulpit swap, and I'm really hoping that he would because I would love to have other pastors come in to our area and be able to share with our congregation so they can hear more than just me. Because if all they hear is me, they're really missing out on a lot. So Kyle, he, he called and he asked if I would do this, and then I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so I started praying over where, what was I going to preach? I've learned over this last year or so, as I've pulpit filled for quite a few churches up here, that... Uh, Pulpit fill is hard because it's a, it's a one and done. You're looking for that one hit wonder to, to bring to the people. Unlike Kyle, who has been doing an amazing job where he gets to preach through series and gets to preach through books of the Bible, I've got to try and find what God wants to share in that moment. And, and oftentimes I've, I've flopped, uh, but I brought his word, and so that's all that I need to bring. And I didn't want to do a psalm. That's what so many people do in pulpit field because psalms are they're, they're, they're good and they're relational to everybody or a proverb. Uh, I did, but I didn't feel God calling on that. And I, didn't, I, I, I just couldn't figure out what it was. And then he spoke to me. He said, why don't you preach my word that is one of your favorite books of the Bible? And we've all got books of the Bible that we love. My wife, she'll tell you her favorite book is the book of Hebrews. She absolutely loves Hebrews, especially Hebrews 11. That's her favorite chapter in the whole Bible. She loves to, to read about all the, uh, the, the hall of, the, uh, of, of all these heroes of the past and seeing how they've walked in their faith. Yeah, I got people that they love the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans. It's actually going to be one of the first uh, series that we're going to do. But for me, I'm, I'm a little weird in what my favorite book is. My favorite book is in the Old Testament. It's not a book that many people like. Uh, it was one that really spoke to me early on in my, my faith, and it's the book of Leviticus. And a lot of people hear Leviticus, why, what, they get lost. Why would you want to read that? We, we do a Bible study plan. We kind of skip over that one. We jump on down. Let's just get through numbers. Let's get on into the, into the good part. But when I first came to faith, and I'm reading through, and you go through Genesis, and Genesis is a great story. As we see the Lord's creation, we see the flood, and we see the blessings that he gives to Abraham as he starts to build his people. And then Exodus, in this amazing journey, as he calls the, the Israelites out of bondage, and this view of, of the, the future to come when he's going to save broken people through his son and call us out of the bondage of sin. And then the building of the tabernacle. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's like details. You've got all these different offerings. You've got, you've got grain offerings. You've got, uh, you've got animal sacrifices. You've, you've got 
all these different rules and regulations, and that's what it was. It was a book about the Levites, the, the tribe of Levi. These were the Levitical priests. And where Exodus, where it was laying out how the tabernacle was to be built, the, the book of Leviticus, it gave the regulations so that the people were going to be able to come to the tabernacle and worship with God. It gave them a way they could become clean through these offerings. Uh, it focuses there in the middle about the Day of Atonement and how they could become clean and be able to come before God. And it's this view of us needing to become clean, needing to be washed clean in order to be able to approach the Lord. But we see that they were never enough. These laws were never enough because we're broken. And as soon as we were clean, they became dirty again. They needed to do the sacrifices again. So ultimately what Leviticus points to is our need for a Savior. It points to our need for for somebody who was worthy to fully wash us clean. The reason I love Leviticus so much is at the very end, there's actually kind of like a little bit of a the, the disclaimer, the, the, the fine print that you see in commercials at the, the, that gives all the details that really you, you kind of gloss over. But in this last chapter, this was the first time I truly saw the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, I know my son, I mentioned that the other day, and he goes, well, what about in, in Genesis 3? when God put the animal skins on Adam and Eve and this view of, of needing to be uh, covered because of our sin, needing the sacrifice to cover us. And I go, yeah, yeah, you can see it there. And my wife, she goes, well, what about Abraham and Isaac? We see as, as Abraham takes Isaac up to offer his son as a sacrifice and the ram that God provides, this, this idea of, of a substitutionary atonement. And I go, yeah, it is. But those point to... I need to be fixed. Those point to what God was going to do. Whereas in this, we see God giving a promise that is the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the, the three promises that are in this chapter. So we're going to do a whole chapter. I promise we're not going to read the whole chapter. But we're going to look at certain verses through it, and we're going to look at these promises that God has. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and open them up. If you've got a device, fire it up. Go to Leviticus. We're going to go to the next to last chapter. We're going to go to chapter 26. We're going to read through chapter 26, through pieces of this, and we're going to see the promises of God. There's three promises that we see in here, three promises he lays out to the, to the Israelites. And this is, like I said, this is almost like the fine print in the contract. The fine print at the end, and when actually in a lot of uh, ancient uh, contracts, it, it, when we see these treaties and all that back then, they ended in a way similar to this, that this was kind of the rules that, that bound it all together. And so we're going to start in uh, verse 1, we're going to read the first 13, and then we'll pick through some others as we go. But in this first section as we read through it, we're going to see the first promise, and that is a promise for obedience. We're going to see God's promises for obedience. So starting in verse 1, it says, I read out of the NASB, your Bible may be different. Mine reads, you shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, Then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. 
Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. Verse 7. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So, Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Lord, we thank you for this message. Father, I pray that that your presence will be with us today. I step aside. May your word go out as we see the promises that you have made to the Israelites, the same promises that you make to us, Lord. So we love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we see here in this first passage, like I said, we see these promises for obedience. What we see is we see God saying, if you'll do good, I'm going to reward you. You do good, you'll get good. He lays these out for them so they can see that this is what they need to do, and this is what will happen because of it. And we do this all the time in our own lives. We do this in our work. If you do a good uh, at your work, you do your job well, you work hard, you complete what you need to do, you get your paycheck. You're rewarded with your pay. You might even get a bonus. We see this in the law. If you don't break the law, you don't get punished. If I'm driving down the road, you're driving down the road, what's the first thing we do when we see a cop on the side of the road? Man, we look in that rearview mirror. But I know if I'm not breaking the law, if I'm not speeding, I know that my reward is he's not going to come after me. I don't have to worry about this cop pulling out after me. He can get the next person behind me. We do it in our families. And I'll talk about family quite a bit with it because we do these quite often. We do it with our kids. I've got three sons. One of them's here with me today. The other two, I don't blame them. They want to stay where they're at because they've only got a few weeks left with the youth there. And so they're down with my wife at Faith Bridge. But we do this with our kids. We, we tell our kids, if you'll clean your room up, I'll give you some extra video game time tonight. Or if, if while we're out, if you guys will just be good, if you don't misbehave, when we get done, we'll go get ice cream. We, we give this promise that if, if you'll just obey, if you do what I've told you, there will be a reward for it. And I can hear the questions that an unbeliever might have that I had myself is, isn't this just God's way of trying to bribe us to do his will? Just like dangling that carrot out in front of us. That really our heart's not into it. He's just getting it out there so that we'll do what he wants us to do. And I remind you, if you go back and read in Job, it's the same argument that the enemy had with God. And God said, go test Job. And you'll see that's not the case. As a matter of fact, God, he wants to, to nip that in the bud right here. And we see it in the first two verses. Look back at verses 1 and 2. At the very end of them, he gives the reason for the obedience. He says, for I am the Lord your God. And he says again in 2, I am the Lord. He says, I am the creator of heaven and earth. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first. I have been here long before you came. 
I created all that you see. He holds our very molecules together by his will. And that there is the reason to walk in obedience, not the rewards. He's saying, because I am God, I am worthy of you obeying me. I'm God, do what I say. And we do this in our own lives. I hate to say it, but as a parent, I've done this. What do we tell our kids when our kids don't want to listen? When our kids ask, why should I do that? Because I said so. I'm the parent. You do what I say. I'm the one in charge, not you. And that's a battle we have. I have quite a bit with my kids, especially as they're starting to get older and they're trying to become a little more dominant. I got a 15-year-old this, at the end of this month that now I have to look up to, and that's a little bit disconcerting. But I have to remind him that I am the parent. Maybe we do it in our jobs. I was an iron worker for 25 years. Iron workers are a bunch of crybabies. The only thing worse than a first-year apprentice is a first-year journeyman because they think they know everything. It's amazing how dumb I got after 25 years. But I'd have to tell them, look, I'm the boss. I've been doing this before you were even thought of, and so I need you to do this. But we've got to be careful when we do this because we're not God. And we've got to make sure that we're not trying to elevate ourselves to a position that we're not. Yes, God has given us authority. He's given us authority over our children. They are a blessing from him. They are his. We are called to shepherd our children, to guide them, to know him. That is our job as parents, is to get our children to adulthood knowing Jesus. But if we're teaching our kids, if we're telling them that because I'm the boss, you need to do this, and we're doing it in unbiblical ways, or we're not helping them come to know Jesus, then we're walking in disobedience. We're not doing what God has called us to. And so God, he's told the Israelites that I'm God, and that's enough. You see, the reason for our obedience is him. The rewards, they're the result. It should never get changed around. The rewards should never be the reason for it. Well, what do I get out of it if I do this? What, what do I get, God, if I follow what you want? The rewards shouldn't matter. Whether we get anything, he is the reason we do it. So he lays the reason out, and then he gives them the rewards. And you can see them there in some of the passages. He says that I'll give you rains. The rains that will grow your crops. You're going to have plenty to eat. You're going to have more food than you can handle. It says that you'll have, your plates will be full. Your food, you'll eat till you're full. He promises them peace, that he'll remove the beasts, that he will give you strength. He's going to give them the strength to overcome their enemies. And then at the end, he says that he will be with them, that I'll make my dwelling with you. What we see here, what we see these rewards are, it's not these tangible items that, that we often want to focus on in this world. We want to see what is the tangible thing I get. What the reward is, is they get God to provide for them. He will provide everything they need. That's their reward. And listen, as for Christians today, this is the model for our worship. It's not what God's going to give us out of it. It's that we're going to get God. We're going to get the creator, a relationship with him. If you've never known truly who God is, you've never walked with him, you may not understand that concept. Because the world tells you, you need to get what you can get. You need to work hard to get these things. You need to have this item. 
God's saying, I'll give you what you need. Come to me and I will give you what you need. I may not give you what you want. Because what we want often isn't what's right for us. We're like a bunch of toddlers that want to put everything we can find in our mouth. No. God says, I'll give you everything you need. He does give us everything we want. And I I want you to hear this. He does give us everything we want if all we truly want is him. If all we truly want is him, then he gives us everything we want. And if we want him, then we'll want to walk in obedience. And listen, I'm not up here preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. There's going to be trials. God's not going to just make it good for you because you pray to him and you lean into him. And you're going to suffer and struggle. But he'll be there with you. And he'll provide you the hope and the strength you need to get through those tough times. When the rains seem to be drying up. When the fields aren't producing. You'll know that he's there. And that he will sustain you through those times. And so God gives us these promises for obedience. He gives us these promises that if we'll obey him, that there are rewards that come with it. But God also gives us this thing called free will. That means that God gives us the option that we we don't have to walk in obedience. There are people who choose to turn away from God knowingly. There are Christians who are struggling and wrestling with God right now. There might be somebody in here right now that's wrestling. And they're turning away from God because they're hurt and they're upset. And God lets us do that. He lets us turn from him. He lets us walk in our rebellion. And so along with the promises for obedience, we see in the second part, we see God's promises for disobedience. These disobedience, it's a, it's a large section. The section runs from 14 to 39. It's 25 verses. God only spent 13 verses saying, and really the first two are just a couple more rules, so you can take two off that. For, and 11 verses, he says, this is what I'm going to give you if you do well. If you do good, if you obey me, this is what you get. But because of how stubborn and hard-headed the Israelites were, and God, being omniscient and omnipotent, knew what was going to happen, He has to give them 25 verses. And 18 out of these 25 verses, he's giving them curses. He's telling them what's going to happen for disobedience. And it grows. This pattern, we see it grows from from trembling in the beginning in verse 16 to that they will have the, uh, they'll lose their strength as it goes on. And eventually that he will bring the, the beast back into the land. And ultimately it ends in exile. He knows that there will be exile come for him. For this disobedience. But he says there's consequences. If you don't do what I say, if you don't follow what I'm telling you to do, this is what's going to happen. And this is, again, this is something we do in our, our, own, our own life. We do this uh, with our, again, I'll go back to my children. I, I'll, I'll tell on myself. My children will make me mad. They'll make me angry. We actually use this idea of promises, these disobedience, negative reinforcement, more than we do positive. And they'll make me upset, and I'm like, if you guys don't knock it off, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to finish it. Or if you don't clean your room, if you don't do what I've told you to do, you're going to get grounded. You see, we make threats. We make threats to our kids. And I know that I'm wrong for doing it. I shouldn't be guiding my children that way. 
We make threats. God, he makes promises. And I say threats as opposed to promises because oftentimes our threats end up being idle. We don't follow up. My wife hates it that we'll make a a threat to our kids and then we don't follow through. Now listen, I know we can all relate to this. I'm sure we've all at least heard it, if not said it ourselves. I heard my father say it when I was a kid, and I thought, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then I found myself saying it as a parent. But I'll tell you, we went on a road trip down to, uh, before we came up here back in 2020, we went down to Gulf Shores, Alabama. From Kansas City, Missouri to Gulf Shores, Alabama is 14 hours. It's the closest beach we have. 14 hours. Ain't like an hour away, but I tell you, it's a lot warmer, a lot nicer beach. But we're going, and you put three young boys in a car for 14 hours, and tempers flare. And then my temper flares. And so we'd made it just south of Memphis. That's about halfway. We're coming into Mississippi, and man, they're going at it. And I get mad, and I grab that mirror, and I turn it, and I'm looking at them. I'm like my dad. And I, man, I look like my dad doing it. And you know what I said? We all know what I said. If you don't knock it off, I'm going to turn this car around. And my kids looked at me the same way I look at my dad, and they're like, man, you think we're dumb? We might go lick doorknobs, but we just drove 10 hours. You're not turning this car around. They knew better. We make idle threats. God, he makes a promise. He tells them this is what's going to happen. He says this is what's going to happen. It's not a threat because he knew where the Israelites were. And the problem with our threats, when we make these threats and threaten our children like that, is we make our love contingent on their obedience. We're saying, if you want me to love you, you need to do what I say. If you want me to love you, if you want me to care for you, if you want me to make you feel worthwhile, you need to obey me. Listen, God's love is not contingent on us. My love may appear contingent. God's love is not contingent. Praise God it's not contingent on us. In 1 John 4, 19, it says we love because he loved us first. In John 3, 16, it says for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love to us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't contingent on us. God's love has no contingency because God's love is greater than anything that we can do. And God knows this. Matter of fact, what God's love does is it brings grace. And God's love brings mercy. And we see that grace and that mercy play out in this passage. In what can seem like a a doom and gloom passage, as he's constantly saying that I'm going to bring this curse upon you, and I'm going to bring this curse upon you, we see a powerful word. It's 11 times in the whole chapter, in my version. One time he uses the word in obedience. It's a one and done. Eight times he uses it in this section for disobedience, and then two times in the last section. The word is very small. It's two letters. But it has so much power behind it because we start to see that grace. God says, if... If, in verse 3, he says, if you walk in my statutes and carry out my commands, then I will give you this. One and done. If you will do what I tell you, if you will obey me, if you will turn from your sin, 
and stay with me. I will bless you. First two, three times he uses it in this section. Again, it's that same, if you do wrong. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out and instead reject my statutes, then this is going to happen. So that seems kind of contingent. Is God's love contingent? Until you see, he starts using the word if again. Look at verse seven, or 18. He's, he gives a curse right after he says, when you disobey. He says that you're going to be in fear. And he says, if also after these things, you do not obey me. He's saying, here's a second chance. Verse 21, after the, he gets done with that last one, he gives them another threat uh, or the promise of, of uh, consequences. In verse 21, he says, if then you act with hostility against me and, and are unwilling to obey me. Again, we see this, this, this view of God pleading. He's crying out, look, here's another chance. I'm going to show grace to you again. Verse 23, and if by these things you are not turned toward me, but act with hostility against me. Right there, that's mercy. He's saying, come back. He's pleading with them. He's saying, I love you so much. Don't stay in this path of despair. Don't stay on this path of brokenness and sin. Don't follow the false idols. The Israelites, they were on a bad path. They constantly pursued sin, disobeyed God. We see it throughout the story in the Old Testament. It's no different than us. We have a God that loves us and we still pursue sin. We still turn away from him. And he's still standing there saying, if this doesn't bring you to me. It's like a father who is, who is trying to, to discipline their child. God is using this to bring them back. Ultimately up into verse 27. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me. He's hit the breaking point with them. But he's still saying, come back. He's pleading with them, come back to me. Don't stay in your brokenness. Listen, God is calling out to us right now. Whether you've been a believer since you were a toddler and you got saved at some, some revival and went and got dunked down in the creek and you've been walking with him for 80 years or you've never turned to God. He is pleading with you to turn from your sin, to turn from your selfish ways and to come to him, to seek him out. Because you see, if we don't, if we continue to walk in our rebellion, just like with the Israelites where God promised them exile, God's promised us that if we walk in rebellion, if we do not return to him, if we don't put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, he's promised us exile, eternal exile from him. But praise God that the same God then is now, and he's promised to provide for the Israelites if they would return to him. He's promised to give them all that they'll need, and he does that for us too. He's calling out to us, promising to give us everything we'd ever need if we would just seek him out. And so maybe, maybe today you, you, you're wrestling with something. Maybe you're wrestling with a sin, something you've been doing and you haven't handed over to him and you, you need to return to him. Maybe, maybe you've never had that relationship with him. Maybe you're so angry with God because of some pain that you've had in your life, some struggle, some hurt. Your life's been tough. You've dealt with tragedy. And you're mad at God because of it. He's saying, come to me, and I'll provide what you need. I'll provide the hope that you're looking for. 
I'll provide the love that you, you may have missed by not having a father. I'll provide the, the nourishment that you need, that's eternal nourishment, food for your soul. He's saying you're not too far gone. It doesn't matter where you are. He's saying, come to me. So we see these promises. We see three of them. We saw the promise for obedience and the promise for disobedience. And then in this last section, we see a shift in the promise. You see, the first two promises were promises for something we had done. Whether we were good or bad, there's a promise of something for it, a result for it. This last one, though, what we're going to see here is we see a promise of. This one comes from God. This isn't something that, that we've earned. This one is from God. We see the promise of forgiveness. We see this promise from God of forgiveness. I want to read through verses 41 through 42. They'll be up here on the screen. Beginning of, or 40 through 42. Beginning in 40, God says, If they confess their inequity and the inequity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their inequity. Look at this, 42. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will also remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. God has just told them that even though they've done all this wrong, even though there was so many verses of what they've done wrong, he's offering forgiveness if they will just repent of their sins. If they will repent of what they have done wrong, if they will turn from this choice of idols, turn from this choice of debauchery, turn from this choice of rebellion and seek forgiveness, he will give it to them. He will offer them hope. He'll forget. He says, he says, I'll remember the covenant. I'll forget what they've done wrong, and I'll remember the covenant. Remember the covenant he made with Abraham. We're long before David. We haven't got the promise of, of the Messiah that we see in David. This is before that, but we see the promise of the Messiah that's in Abraham. Because he promises Abraham that he'll make him a great nation. Got over a million Israelites that have been let out of bondage. And then he also promised Abraham that in his seed the whole world would be blessed. God is remembering the promises. When, when they would just turn away from self, make that pivot. And God says it doesn't matter where they are. You look in verse 44, God says, Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, when they're exiled, he knows they're going to be in exile. They're not going to be in the promised land that he's led them to. They're going to be in exile. He says, when they're there, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. He reminds them again, I'm God. He says, I'll remember the covenant there in verse 45. doesn't matter that they are so far away from him at that point. They're not where he had brought them to. But they're in this, this captivity in Babylon. But he says, I'll hear them, and I'll forgive them of all they've done wrong. Listen, when I write a sermon, 
when I go through this and I work through this, I break the passages down like I've done here into these sections. I see how God's speaking. And I look at four things. I try to look at the explanation. I try to look at the uh, illustration. I try to find the argumentation. And I try to find the application. So the explanation, that's how we've talked through it. The illustration, so we're talking about how, it applies, how we see it in our lives with our kids. Argumentation, that's the questions that you might have as you hear God's word speaking. I had a lot of arguments as I was first hearing God speak. I wanted a question about, kind of like, wasn't God just dangling the carrot in front? And then the application, that's how does it apply to us. This passage right here, it doesn't need an illustration. This section doesn't need an argumentation. Because I told you this is the first time I saw the gospel. And that's what this is. God just gave the gospel there in that section. God just promised them forgiveness for their sins, something they don't deserve simply by putting their faith in him. God has promised them. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. How far they think they are away from, he's promised them forgiveness. It's the same gospel he's told us. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Or what you, it doesn't matter how many times you've been divorced. It doesn't matter if you've been to jail. It doesn't matter if you've done drugs. It doesn't matter if you've stole stuff. If you've used the Lord's name in vain all your life. God's saying if you will turn from that sin, as long as there is breath in your lungs, if you will pivot away from self, which is what the world wants you to pursue. The world wants you to pursue yourself. You're all that matters. This world has made you your own God. He's made me my own God. The world has tried to, to draw us to self. God's saying, if you will turn from that, and you will come to me. He's saying, I'll forgive you. I will forgive you of all that you've done. And I will bring you back into that relationship that you were designed for. And now listen, there's still a price to pay. The, price, the promises that God gave for disobedience, it's a promise. It means he can't lie. It has to happen. There's a consequence for all the sin that we have done, for all the wrong we've done. But I got news. That was paid for at the cross. Christ paid that price so that we don't have to. And we get to reap the rewards, the promises for obedience, for putting our faith in him, for following him. It's nothing we can earn. It's nothing we have to do. Because he's done the work. God started the plan long before he made this creation. And he's had this plan for the gospel and for our salvation, for our restoration, before we were ever thought. God created us in love, but we've rebelled from him. And I want to share for those in here who have maybe never heard. I've even using the word the gospel. And maybe you don't know what the word gospel means. Maybe somebody will hear this online sometime and they don't know what that word means. I didn't know what that word meant. But the word gospel, it means the good news. And the good news is Jesus. Listen, God made you on purpose and for a great purpose. That purpose was not to, to make the most money you could make. It wasn't to have the most friends you can have. It wasn't to have the dream house or the big boat or motorcycles. It wasn't to travel the world. God's purpose was to have a relationship with him. That's why you're here on this earth. Because he loved you so much, he wanted a relationship with you. But unfortunately, because of sin, sin that entered into this world through Adam and Eve, sin that progressed through generations, 
to each one of us. Again, back to my kids, I never taught them how to lie. We all are sinners. It's part of who we are. That sin has separated us from God. He's holy. He's perfect. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He cannot be in the presence of our broken sin. But God, in all his wisdom, saw our greatest need. And that was for a Savior. And so at just the right moment in time, he sent down his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. And he went to the cross where he was nailed up there to bear the wrath of God for your sin and mine. And he died and he was buried and he arose on the third day, proving he was who he says he was and he could do what he says he could do. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Christ was sinless and yet he died, which means he had to pay for somebody else. He was paying the price for someone else and that was us. And the Bible tells us if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you too will be saved. There is hope. There is hope for those who may feel hopeless, for those who are struggling with pain, who are struggling with hurt, who have bought into the lies of this world that you're your own God. That hope is in Jesus Christ. He came to do the work that none of us could do. Every one of us deserves. I deserve to be put on that cross more than anybody. But he paid the price so that I didn't have to. And so now when God sees me, still sees it, that I, I make mistakes. Thank God that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But he no longer sees me as the sinner. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he sees you cloaked in the righteous blood of his son. Perfect. And he welcomes you in with open arms. And there's no better time than right now. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But we know when we leave this earth, it's too late. And so as the, the band comes up, as we conclude here, I encourage you if, you, if you are struggling with something, if you're struggling with a sin, if you're struggling with pain in your life, give it to God. If you're struggling with the hurt in this world, something that's happened that you just can't understand why, give it to God. Seek him, and he promises forgiveness. He promises to provide for you. He promises to love you no matter what. He is calling out to you as he's crying out to them. If this doesn't draw you toward me, he's drawing you toward him now. So let us pray.